Good morning, and let's turn to Romans 1.17, please. Very poignant song that expresses the psalmist and all of our desire. In fact, the prayer of Pastor Brown and Vicki's song both were very inundated with the psalms. And fully 100 of the 150 of them have something to do with a righteous one who calls out to God and God faithfully delivers him. And that's the very basis and foundation of our gospel. It's very good to see the Schessler family here today. And one of my fondest memories, Matthew, is that of your dad. And it's one of those moments where in reflecting on past few decades, you say, if it was only for that moment that I spent all my time here, it was worth it. And there are so many moments like that. Matthew's dad, Mike, was at one of the messages one night, and I think it was in one of the small classrooms at IUP. We, were, we bounced around a little bit. And I, was, I had a message all planned out. And at the last seconds... The thought came, just preach simply, Jesus is the Son of God. And so I did, and the whole message was surrounded around that one point, that one heart point. And afterwards, Matthew's dad, Mike, who has since gone into the glorious presence of his Savior, said to me, I have been reflecting on this all. It is occupied my whole heart as to who Jesus is and today I found out so God evoked faith in him that day and he remained faithful right to the end and I'm very glad that you're here today with us it's good to see you again I could say that for so many other moments that when you reflect upon the past and the times of preaching the gospel that you say, well, if it was just for that one message or just that one person, just that one soul, then it was all worth it. Whatever pain, whatever pleasure, whatever grief, whatever opposition, whatever adversity, it's all worth it. And so today, we're pretty much saying the same thing but clothing this glorious message of God's gospel about his son with a lot of scripture. In Paul, it's always a wise policy to consider not only the quoted text, and he quotes many texts, but many times we miss it because he simply alludes to it or points to it very subtly by a word or two words the rabbis had a word for that kind of thing. It was called Gezerah Shava, where one word associates you with another word in another verse. But in Romans 1.17, which I consider to be where all the gospel is, the whole thing's in there. It's like the old commercial, the Prego spaghetti sauce. What about this? What about it's in there? What about this? It's in there. What about it's in there? It's all in there. Romans 1.17, then, is kind of a kernel verse, a germ verse that contains the whole of the gospel. The second half of it, though, is a quote, an explicit quote of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4b, the second part. And so it's always important when we look at the verse, not just to look up the verse with Paul, but to look at the context immediately. They fan it out a few verses before and a few verses after, sometimes the whole chapter, sometimes the whole book, sometimes the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament. So in Paul, reading Paul, it's always a wise policy to consider not only the quoted text, but the original context around that text. He starts in Romans 1-2 with, the gospel of God about his son was once sort of hidden in the prophets, the writings of the prophets. But now we'd say in our modern parlance, it's popping. It's popping from the prophets. It's unveiled and revealed. It's seen very clearly. God's son 
is the hero of the whole of the scriptures. And it's all about his son. Now, in the case of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, we have in the Septuagint, which is the Greek text that Paul quotes most often, and I'll just say it without writing it all out. He says, Ho de dikaios ek pistios mu. And then he talks about the righteous one will live by, and he says mu, M-O-U in the Greek text, my faithfulness. The righteous one will live. Yahweh is speaking through his prophet. He speaks through the mouth of his prophets, as we know from Acts 3.21. And you'll remember that all of the prophets, without exception, through whom God spoke, spoke of apokatastasis panton, the restoration of all things. This little assembly and all messianic communities dotted across this earth today whether it's two or three, 50, 60, 1,000, or more, is to be a preview of the reconciled unity of the entire universe and of all creation in all of its times. We are to be a preview of that unity, that peace, that harmony, that concord, and that love. In the case of Habakkuk 2.4, then, Paul skips the word mu, me, my faith, and he simply says, Ho de, ho de dikaios ek pistios zesetai. Simply, the righteous one will live on account of his faithfulness. That little preposition ek in the Greek text, you might not even know this, but I'm exegeting. That little ek preposition, ek pistios, means on account of. On account of faithfulness, the righteous one will live. It's in a future tense in Habakkuk. But we know that this righteous one does live. And God has caused him to live as a reward for his faithfulness. The only difference then between the Septuagint translation or the Greek translation of Habakkuk 2.4 and Paul's quotation of that text is the word mu, which appears in the Habakkuk text, but not Paul's. But Paul is just as inspired as the prophet Habakkuk, and so he's adapting that passage to his own use of the gospel. And it doesn't do anything to do violence to the interpretation. Paul simply has faithfulness. The omission of mu for my is significant because Yahweh's faithfulness, the faithfulness of God, which makes this righteous one live, and the faithfulness of this righteous one are deliberately united. The righteous one will live by faithfulness, on account of faithfulness, on account of his faithfulness, on account of my faithfulness. The Father and the Son are one in the act of fidelity. Now, previous to Habakkuk 2.4b, if you look at the context, you can do it on your own. The Lord spoke to the prophet about a vision that is for an appointed time. This is right in Habakkuk 2, 1 and following. A vision for an appointed time. And then he says, and that vision shall arise. And I do want to give this word. It's anatello, A-N-A-T-E. L-L-O, Anatello. And Anatello is the same word that Malachi uses when he says the son of righteousness will arise. This is a similar word to anistemi, which means resurrection. The vision shall arise, or arise like the sun, at an appointed time. And God says it will occur exactly at the time that I appointed it to come. We know what time that was. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Paul already made the argument, and we'll do it when we get to Galatians, if we get to Galatians someday, that those under the law is not just the Jews, but all of humanity. Because sin co-opted the law, and sin controlled all humanity. Jesus redeemed all of humanity from the control of sin 
which even used the law in its purpose, its nefarious purpose. So earlier then, that vision will arise like the son of righteousness arises in Malachi 3.20 or the English text Malachi 4.2. He said it will arise at the end and it will not be in vain. A lot of this comes into the New Testament where Paul says, I urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, the grace of God that has come with Jesus Christ. The advent of faith is the advent of Jesus Christ. The coming of faithfulness into the world is the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. We are saved by that grace. And through a faithfulness that is not of us. So we have no reason to boast. And speaking of that. God says through the prophet, it's a vision worth waiting for. But he says it this way. If it tarries in your view, if it's delayed in your perception, wait for it anyways. It's worth waiting for is what he's saying. If the vision tarries or waits or is delayed because of your human perception. It's going to come in its appointed time. And when it comes, it will not delay. That's God's perception. Then in the Greek text, it says, if it draws back or if it doesn't happen in that time, I won't be pleased, God says. My soul will not be pleased with it. That's another way of saying it'll come when I say it's going to come. It'll come when it's appointed to come. The same thing is true about the parousia, the universal appearance of Jesus Christ. When every eye sees him, when every knee genuflects, when every tongue acknowledges, when all the nations turn to the Lord and worship him, when the Lord Jesus Christ himself presents all of redeemed creation to the Father so that God is all in all. That's an appointed time. And it'll come, and it won't delay, even though from our perception, sometimes it seems to. What we often think is a crisis of faith is really a crisis of hope rooted in our imperfect perceptions. Faith is the conviction of things hoped for. Now, we know the scriptures that that's all going to come true, but what about the things we personally hope for in this life? They may be things that we put before God and demanded that he fulfill and even said that he said he'd fulfill, but maybe he didn't. Or they may be hopes that are rooted in true faith and true hope that we just have to wait for. If it's worth it, it's worth waiting for. If it's worth it, it is worth waiting for. The things we wait the longest for sometimes are the most treasured, cherished and never taken for granted things for the rest of our lives. That's pastoral advice, no extra charge. In fact, no charge at all. So the way Yahweh speaks, and he almost does it with a sense of humor, if it, not he, but if it draws back, my soul is not pleased in it. This is a manner of speaking which says the appointed time will come exactly when I have determined it will come. And it did. It did from our perspective. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And furthermore, in the fullness of time, God has already determined and resolved to sum up everything in his son. And that time will be exactly When God determines it to be, don't let your hope fail. And hope is not disappointed. Because in the meantime, God does something for you. He sends his Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts. And that love of God poured out in our hearts makes this life worth living. Even in the midst of some bizarre adversities and every adversity is not so much a test for you but a way for God to affirm your faith and not let it fail so sometimes the most prolonged tests or the most prolonged 
seasons, I'll say, being careful to use that word test, the most prolonged seasons of unresolved hope are the most precious times to live. In the meantime, God gives you the assurance of his love because this spiritual life that we talk about, this God-approved livingness, is not about us loving God, but about us letting God love us unconditionally and undergoing the ego death of forgiving ourselves. We don't forgive ourselves because of the profoundest kind of pride. Our our ego dies in self-forgiveness because we're imitating God in his forgiveness of us because of Christ. And that means not only forgiving what we've done, but forgiving who we are. We now know that the time has certainly come. Even now, but not completely yet. Even now, but not completely yet. Even now, better yet. Even now, but then completely. This anticipated vision, which was anticipated by Habakkuk, is the revelation of the righteousness of God, which is his love. God's righteousness is his love. There is a word called principle, not principal. We always were told principle, P-L-E, is not principle, P-A-L. The principle, whom I made a few visits to, his office or her office, Miss Corcoran. She showed me how tough she was one time when I went in there. I thought I was pretty tough. And then the toughest guy in school was standing next to Miss Corcoran, who at the moment backhanded this guy and knocked him into a filing cabinet. And so I suddenly became very humble in the presence of Miss Corcoran. <laughs> she said, why are you here? I said, I got kicked out. She goes, you got what? I said, I got thrown out. I mean, I, got, I, I was asked to leave. I was told to come here. And she, you could tell she had to turn around to laugh a little bit. She made me memorize a poem by Longfellow, the longest poem I ever memorized. And I had to sit in that chair until I memorized it. So the next morning when I went home, no, it was not really. Why am I saying that? Who knows? I don't despair of memory lapses. I just ride the boat. So the anticipated vision is really a vision of the invasion of God's righteousness into this evil age. And God's righteousness is his love. Now the principle, that's where I was, principle, It was hard for you to tell me your principal is your pal. That's one thing about Miss Corcoran. She wasn't our pal. That's in the days when parents weren't the best friends of their children, but they reared their children up to be adults. And that's the time when teachers had authority, and the authority was disciplinary many times, but you also saw the twinkle of love in their eyes through their authoritarian discipline. What a... I'm so grateful for the way that I grew up in North Bennington. But my principal was never my pal. So I always go with this, principle. It means two things. It can mean a point of doctrine, or it can mean the source and basis for a thing. And that's the, that's the kind of use I'll give it today. The principle of righteousness, the source and basis for it, is love. God is righteous, that's an adjective. But God is love, that's a noun. God is love. He may be righteous, adjective, but he is love, noun. That's who he is. So his righteousness is rooted and finds its origin and source in love. So does his justice. 
When people separate God's justice from his love, they ask, well, what about God's justice? Doesn't that mean there should be a hell for people? But they fail, they fail to recognize that his justice is rooted in his love. And therefore, his judgments are beyond searching. They're beyond calculating because when we think of judgment, we think of a judge dropping a gavel to pronounce a sentence of condemnation. But in God's case, God has come to rescue us. And his judgments are always salvific when it comes to his people, to his creation, to his original creation, whether it be angelic or human, animal or vegetable, whatever it is. The anticipated vision is the revelation of the righteousness of God, which we now know is the act of delivering his royal son. Or the righteous one, 100 of the Psalms alludes to this righteous one out of 150. Delivering his royal son, his righteous one, from his enemies. Who are his enemies? He has made our enemies his enemies. Sin which enslaves us, and the reign of death by which the adversary keeps us in fear of death all our lives. He destroyed the works of the devil. The Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. The primary work of the devil, according to Hebrews 2.14 and 15, is to use the leverage of the reign of death and keep people in fear of it all their whole lives. If there's any momentary shame when people are raised from the dead, it'll be the momentary shame that'll be washed away immediately, but the momentary shame, I live my whole life in fear. When perfect love casts out all fear drives it out. There's no place for it. Fear might have been the strong man, but a stronger man than he came in and pillaged the house. We have to stop thinking of the atonement as a penal substitution. God's angry, so he had to find somebody to pour out his anger on, so he found Jesus for us. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The entire divine missions was an invasion into the evil age to rescue. Christ died for us to rescue us from this present evil age, which has dominating apocalyptic powers called sin and death. Sin so powerful that it even kidnapped the law for its own purpose. So therefore, this vision that Habakkuk was to wait for is a revelation of the righteousness of God in the act of delivering his royal son from enemies, the enemies called sin and death, and with his deliverance, the deliverance of all of humanity. Romans 5.18 tells that story as we ride the high places in Romans. It's therefore a revelation of God's love, this vision. Of God who is love. The time has come. Later in Romans 13. Look at it. Because this is at the other side of the. The other flank. In Romans 13. Look at it for a moment with me. 13.11. Then we're going to move on a little bit faster. And I hope in these next two messages. In Wednesday and Thursday. To make some significant advances on our study called GAL. G-A-L. God-approved livingness. That's the other leg we're walking on. You got the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, the universal impact of the cross of Christ. Then the question arises, then how do we live? How shall we now live? How will we live our lives now in this juncture of the ages? While we have the kingdom of God even now, but not yet completely. Not yet completely. How do we live? That's the answer. The answer to that, we're trying to deliver little by little, spoon-fed on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Here's a hint of it. 
This shows that speaking of the time, speaking of the time, the appointed time, look at what, and this is my translation of Romans 13, 11. And this, he says, knowing the time. And I think this goes all the way back to Habakkuk, the time, the appointed time. Knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to rise up from sleep. More than once I've gone to bed around 2 o'clock in the morning recently, and then I get up awake at 7, and I say, well, I'll sleep until 9. And I kind of hear this verse ringing in my ears, it's now time for you to arise from sleep. And I'm thinking of something I should write down. And so I get up, and then I say, well, you know, maybe I'll just make some coffee and go back to bed and sleep a while. By the time the coffee's going and I smell it, I'm wide awake, so I go right. And this is some of the things I've written. So he says, knowing the time that it's already the hour for you to rise up from sleep, because now our salvation is closer than when we first believed. That's when God first evoked faith in us at the hearing of the gospel. Verse 12, now the night is almost over. He uses the term night as a metaphor for the evil age in Galatians 1.4. The night, it's almost over. Far spent is the King James. Almost over is what we say. The dawn is just ready to come over that mountain. The sun comes over the mountain, and then when it comes over, it spills into the valley, and it lights everything up. That's what time it is right now. The day is near. That's the dawn, the breaking of day, we call it. So put off the works of darkness. That's like Paul saying when you get up in those days, you took off your night clothes. Just like in baptism, you took off your old clothes. And many churches provide a new garment for you to put on after the baptism. In those days. So put off the works of darkness, meaning like you put off your night clothes. And put on the armor of light. Here he's saying awake, not just to live, but to fight. Not just to live. Not just with readiness to live, but with readiness to do battle. You can compare this to Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. Then he says in verse 13, let us walk in a way that is appropriate for daytime. Let's comport ourselves in a way. That's appropriate for daytime. This simply means not sleepwalking. Sleepwalking is inattentiveness. You don't know what you're doing. You're just walking around, perhaps making comments that offend everybody in your wake. Who knows? Inattentive. So appropriate for daytime means being attentive, not inattentive. This means to conduct our lives in a manner that's appropriate to the age that has dawned with Christ's resurrection from the dead. And an age which is about to come to its noonday brilliance. It means to walk according to a rule, Galatians 5, 6 and Galatians 6, 15, a connection that is profound that we'll be getting to, a rule that the Israel of God walks by. In Galatians 6, 16, that rule is a faith that works by love, a faith evoked by God that works by a love produced by God. It's God in you, both willing and working, of his own good approval, pleasure. Then he says, he gets specific to Christians in Rome, in the heart of the Roman Empire. Not with excessive partying and drunkenness. Not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery. Then he gets down to what's really happening within the church here. Not in quarrels and party strife. Notice I did a little twist on partying. Partying and party strife. Factionalism. Arguments rooted in group bias. A desire to lord it over others. Somehow, maybe subtly... Like the Jewish Christians, well, Jewish Christian man says, well, I've been circumcised and I follow the feast days. 
the Gentile Christian looks back at him and says, ha, 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 God forsook you Jews, and he's not going to take you back again. It's an innate, distorted desire to have some kind of preeminence over others. It's devastating. It's riddled throughout the Adamic ontology. And that's why it makes so much sense when he says, on the contrary, that is, instead of the desire to lord it over others, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him lord it over you and others. Is what the point is. On the contrary, he says, speaking of the last things about quarrels and party strife, factionalism rooted in group bias, on the contrary, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, which should be capitalized here. Flesh is an apocalyptic cosmic power, not the old sin nature, but a cosmic power that's akin to capital S-I-N, sin. Make no provision for the flesh that is for its desires, its distorted desires. The flesh distorts your desire. It all began in an illustration with the serpent speaking to Eve. And her thinking, wow, this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil looks like something that will make me wise. But then the serpent said to her, and you know what he did when he said this? He presented God as a rival God, God rivalistic. God's jealous of you. You won't die if you eat this fruit. You'll be like God, but he doesn't want you to be like him. You see, he's. God is filled with rivalry. If you have an image of God as a rival, then you'll be in rivalry the rest of your life with other people. Make no provision for the flesh that is for its desires. In this case, the desires of the flesh refer to the expression of the impulsive desire of the flesh or the power of sin under the reign of death. Now, I said all that to say that right after Habakkuk 2.4b, the righteous one will live by faithfulness or on account of faithfulness. In Habakkuk 2.5, there is a man who is then called a scoffer and a boaster. A boaster. Memories harking back to Jeremiah 9.23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. The rich man boast in his wealth. The strong man boast in his strength. Anyone that wants to boast, let him boast that he knows and understands me, says the Lord. Who exercises mercy and righteousness and judgment salvific in all the earth. So right after Habakkuk 2.4b, he identifies a contrasting man called a scoffer and a boaster. He sounds like this teacher Paul is in combat with, rhetorical combat. Aladzon is his name, boaster. The word is found in Romans 1.30 too, 1.30, T-O-O. At the height of a list of terrible attributes that a Jewish teacher places on the pagans, which Paul then says, it's true of the pagans, but it's also true of you. Romans 2.1. This person would like to have, according to Habakkuk 2.8, all the nations gathered to him. <laughs> Looks like he's in competition with someone. But instead, he has plundered all the nations. That which people want to call the Antichrist is nothing but man in his Adamic ontology. All men, all people. You see, the new social media gives you the opportunity to say, look at me, and you, you, the more hits you get. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm just saying the motive in some people is the more hits you get, the more people like you, the more people like you. But you, what, you, what a lot of people really want that don't know this true gospel is all the nations to be subject to them. 
You see, Adamic ontology always will take the bait. How would you like all the nations to worship you? I'll take it. What have I got to do? How would you like all the nations to bow down to you? Jesus said, how would you like to bow down to God Almighty? Which is what I do, he says. But the destiny of the righteous one is that, quote, in the end, the earth will be filled with knowing the glory of the Lord. That's what Habakkuk 2.14 says. And where is that glory of the Lord? The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth, says Habakkuk 2.14. Fill the earth. Kind of an echo of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. No one will have to say, know the Lord, for they will all know me. Why will all know him? Because the knowledge of the glory of God that shines even now in the face of Jesus Christ, which we see reflected in the ministry of the word by the spirit. That knowledge of the glory of the Lord shining from his face is the light that will shine in all the earth when he comes. The angels already see it that way. Holy, 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 Lord God of the armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. They already see that. We ought to take a hint. Jesus prayed it. But your will be done on earth. Just like it is in heaven. It's another way of saying let your glory fill all the earth. Just like it fills all of heaven. According to Habakkuk 2.14. In the context. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And in Habakkuk 2.20. All the earth will do reverence. All the earth will do reverence before the Lord. That's Jesus Christ compared with Romans 14, 11, Isaiah 45, 22 to 23, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, and Romans 15, 9 and following. The contrast then of the righteous one with the boaster is significant throughout Romans. It's actually pitting one gospel against the other. This contrast of the righteous one with the boaster, Habakkuk 2.4 and 2.5, is significant throughout Romans, just as Jeremiah 9.23-24 showed the contrast between boasting in one's own wisdom, strength, wealth, or works, and the one who boasts in the Lord. And I'm not talking about somebody who says, I'm as proud as hell, but I know I'm supposed to boast in the Lord. So I boast in you, Lord. It wasn't me singing. It was Jesus. I always reply to that one. No, Jesus sings better than you. But he gave you that gift, that talent. He does. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel, not David. The son of David is the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's the one that leads the chorus to the father And all that has breath follows and praises Yahweh. Romans 15, 9, together with Psalm 150, together with 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. The contrast between the righteous then and the boaster goes throughout the gospel. Like throughout the Psalms. The Psalm that introduces all the Psalms talks about the godly man versus the ungodly. The godly man versus the ungodly. The righteous man versus the ungodly. The ungodly are not so. They're not that way. The righteous one is like a tree planted by waters. Rivers of water. Taps into the root of life. So it's also the contrast between Paul's peace-promoting gospel. Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faithfulness, Messiahs, we have Peace with God. Peace with God and peace among each other. Romans 5.1. So the contrast also extends to Paul's peace-producing gospel and the so-called gospel of an opponent who, like the teachers that disturbed the peace in Galatia and in the Galatian churches, Preach a gospel that's really not good news at all. It's kind of like 
Do you know that Jesus loves you? But if you don't accept him, you're going to burn forever in hell. That's how much God loves you. Tell me that's good news, and I'll tell you that you need help. It's a hard pill to swallow when you realize that you've been part of a movement called Christianity that has scattered people away from Jesus Christ rather than drawn them. It's a hard pill to swallow. Swallow it we must if that's what we were doing. My early infancy as a Christian, we used to call it blitzing. Blitzkrieg. Come back. I got 22 people to say that prayer. Really? That's because, you know what the prayer really translated is? I really have to go. Yes, I'm a sinner. Jesus, come into my heart. Save me. Thank you. Bye. I got to go. I got to run. I got to do something. They forget the next moment that they said that prayer. Thank God. So, it's a hard pill. You say, you're agreeing with me. I can tell because you're going. Well, wouldn't you rather swallow that pill, take that medicine, and repent than to stand shamefacedly before the face of Jesus Christ? Most of the preaching that we do is saving you from embarrassment at that moment. So Paul is in a contradiction with the teacher. This teacher, as we're seeing in Romans, teachers, plural, as you see in Galatians, they assume in Romans 4.1, where we're going on midweek, they assume that Abraham was justified by works and therefore he has something to boast about. The teacher says to Paul, what about Abraham in the Old Testament that you brag about so much that talk about God's son? If Abraham, he doesn't say if, he says since. Now, since Abraham was justified by works, he's got something to boast about. And Paul replies and says, that's not how God sees it. That's Romans 4.1. It's Paul and the teacher, the teacher first. Well, Abraham was justified by works. He's got something to boast about. Paul said, it ain't how God sees it. I don't know if he said ain't, but he might have. It's in the dictionary now. When we were kids, you said ain't. You, we didn't get a backhand from Miss Corcoran, but you didn't get a congratulatory speech either. Ain't isn't a word. Now ain't is. So ain't that something? So, and you can end sentences with a preposition. So you don't have to say like Winston Churchill said, ending a sentence with a preposition is a linguistic disaster up with which I will not put. Now, you can end a sentence with a preposition. Isn't that fun? No more linguistic legalism. It's really impossible to boast in ourselves if we know and believe that we have been justified by the faithfulness of another. Very simple. Namely, the righteous one. The righteous one's faithfulness. And that we have been saved by the faithfulness of another. For by grace, you were saved. Through faithfulness. And that faithfulness not of yourselves lest anyone should boast Ephesians 2 8 now we're saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus that's what Paul that's what Peter concluded in the great conference in Jerusalem he said we have to conclude he said that we Jews are saved the same way these Gentiles are saved, by the grace of our Lord Jesus. But he also said faith purifies the heart. Faith is given after the justification act by God to purify our hearts in Acts 15, 11. 15, 9 through 11, the whole story is told, grace and faith. 
But faith is given and evoked in us to purify our hearts from, among other things, boasting. Pride. Paul is really hammers that stuff in Romans 12, 3. After the big 12, 1 and 2, he says, I say to you, according to the apostolic grace given to me, that not one of you should be proud among yourselves. But think in a sober manner as you have faith as a standard of measure, not your personal faith. You have the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, Romans 12, 3, as the new standard to measure you and others. And you're all in equal standing with him because of his faithfulness. So in closing, it's vital that we understand that Paul sees as we must see. Paul sees as we must see Jesus Christ as the righteous one and no other. As the one who's in whose face the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth. And I want to close with last week I said our collaboration with other theologians is extremely important. It's my view, tested view, educated view now that any advances in theological insight are a result of collaboration with others. You can't just hole up and think you're going to get all this wonderful stuff. There's collaboration. It's called the body of Christ in which many have gifts. And this time I want to close by a collaborative conversation in keeping with what I've introduced today. This time with a person named Joshua Jipp, J-I-P-P. Joshua, I'm sure he wasn't kidded as a kid. If he lived up in North Bennington, I would start right in on him. I got gypped. You know, Pastor Stewart gave me this book. It's called Christ the King. It's phenomenal. This is, and I'm going to quote lengthy from him as I did from Campbell last week in Deliverance of God. In Christ the King... He places, and what I've been doing is taking the arrow, 117, going to 322, where the faithfulness is spoken of again, to 518, or 326, which shows that Jesus Christ was the one whom God justified. But Romans 518, he says this, and this is a lengthy quote, Joshua Jip, Christ the King, hope he doesn't get mad, but I am giving the right Copyright information at the end of this. Romans 5.18b provides more evidence, he says, that Paul sees Habakkuk 2.4b in Romans 1.17 as witnessing to God's granting of life to the righteous one because of his faithfulness. I'm not the only one saying this now. He said it right there. He goes on to say, on this reading in both texts, both Romans 1.17 and 5.18, Christ is righteous, ho dikaios, and in 5.18, it's di enos di kai omatos, one righteous, one righteous person, one righteous act. And his righteousness results in life, he says. Goes on to say the semantic relationship Paul has established throughout Romans between faith and obedience and he uses Romans 1, 5, 6, 6 to 18, 15, 18, and 16, 26, an arrow right through the epistle. And the fact that Paul connects pistis, or faith, or faithfulness, and dikaiosune in chapters 1 through 4. But hupakoe, which means obedience, and dikaiosune in chapters 5 and 6, suggests the likelihood that just as it is Christ's obedience that results in justification... In 5.18 to 19, so it is Christ's faithfulness, ek pistios, that justifies those who have faith in 117b. And this would confirm that 3.21 to 22, the revelation of dikaiosune theu, takes place through the faithfulness of Messiah Jesus And then he goes on and gets technical, but he says, if one takes the genitive... To allude to Jesus' faithfulness to God in the face of death, along with God's subsequent resurrection, discloses God's righteousness, then this would fit neatly with Paul's claim that Christ's righteousness and obedience results in humanity's justification. 
Romans 5, 18, 5, 18 to 19. Now remember something I'm going to get into this week. Romans 1, 16. To all those who believe doesn't mean that there are some who do and some who don't. All those who believe is a phrase that shows that Jesus Christ's faithfulness embodies all human beings. His faithfulness embodies all human beings. So we're rewarded not for our faithfulness. We're rewarded for his faithfulness, which is why Romans 4 4 says when you're getting paid, usually the pay is calculated by the work you did. But God calculates reward on the basis of grace because of the work Jesus Christ did. That's all coming up. Just a hint of things to come. He goes on to finish and say, Paul says in Romans 3.26b that the result of this is, and then he uses the phrase, and I don't even have it in the English, but the Greek says, Eisto enai auton dikaion kai dikaionta ton ek pistios Jesu. And he says, this matter is worthy of a longer discussion, but significant witnesses, and he gives all the significant manuscripts, testify that some read 326 as, quote, in order that God might be just and the one who justifies Jesus by means of his faithfulness. That's what we got to last week with Campbell in our discussion and conversation with him. So here's another witness. So we now have three witnesses. And this would make perfect sense with the description of God as righteous. God does what is right in justifying the faithful and righteous Messiah. Finally, it is worth noting that as with Romans 4.25, it may be that Isaiah 53.11, where God, quote, justifies the righteous one who has enslaved himself for many, stands behind Romans 5.18-19. We'll get into that again, 53.11 of Isaiah, which says essentially, by his suffering, he will justify many, where many means all in the Hebrew nuance there as we've also shown. Now, I want to close by a short paragraph. Paul had said of his enemies in Philippi, and this is what I woke up on this morning and yesterday morning both. Paul wrote to the Philippians, a church in Macedonia, and he said of them, which is something similar to what I say to you today. He said, you're in my heart. You are in my heart. And then he says, you are all partners with me in grace. Both in my imprisonment, for Paul it was literal, for me it's an imprisonment to this call that I can't escape. And in the defense, he says, and the word is apologia, where we get the word apologetics. In the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partners together with me, both in my imprisonment. Paul was in prison, but he was going to appeal to Caesar. But in his appeal to Caesar, he said, I'm not set or appointed to defend myself before Caesar. I look at it as an opportunity to defend the gospel and to confirm it and affirm it right at the heart of the Roman Empire, right to Caesar, right to Caesar's household. And many people were saved in Caesar's household, including many of the elite Praetorian Guard. But he also spoke of those who preached a message of Christ out of rivalry in Philippians 1, 14 and 15. They wanted to add to his chains in prison. They wanted to add to the adversity that he already had by garnering more hero, hearers than he had, as if that mean any, would mean anything to Paul. It didn't. But he says, some preach Christ out of rivalry with me, seeking to add to my pain in my imprisonment others he said preach Christ out of love and that's in Philippians 1:16. and you know why he says because they know that I am appointed or destined for the defense of the gospel Philippians 1 16 and 17 he talks about they know that I am destined for the defense, apologia, and the confirmation, bebiosis, of the gospel. And that's what Paul's doing in Romans. The defense of the gospel from another gospel. That's what he's doing in Galatians, the defense of the gospel. And when he writes to the Philippians, he's about to face a judicial trial, but he says, I'm not on trial, the gospel is, and I'm going to defend it. 
It's not meant to topple Rome, though it will. I can't wait till Wednesday and Thursday where I'm going to tear apart some labels that we proudly wear. And when we proudly wear them, we're not aware that we're stepping all over other people's values sometimes. But that's, an, that's coming up. Don't worry about it. It won't hurt. I'm giving you Novocaine. Oh, wait a minute. That hurts too. Now, as we suggested last week, and I want to leave you with this important thought, the defense of the gospel is actually the defense of God's integrity. Because the gospel is the gospel of God, says Romans 1, 1 and 2, about God's son. It's his own pronouncement, its own announcement also about his son and the universally saving significance of his son. To defend this gospel then is to defend the righteousness and the justice of God. The doctrine of hell is an attack against the justice and the righteousness of God, the principle of which is love. That's a blasphemy. That is a heresy. And that's from men and women who do not have the lenses to see the Lord Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance in the Bible. And therefore they scatter abroad rather than gather to Jesus Christ. So then, to defend this gospel is to defend the righteousness and the justice of God, the principle of which, and this one can be your pal, is his love. The defense of God is the defense of God as love. For God is love. And he has sent his son to save the world through him. He has sent his son to save the world through him. John 3.17, often omitted, is getting to the point that John 3.16 only introduces. To save the world through him. And God demonstrated his own love in that while we were all all of humankind and all of our times as God sees humanity, still sinners, yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is an enemy-loving love. Love your enemies. And that doesn't mean your apocalyptic enemies, sin and death and principalities and powers, but it means to love all of humankind. For at one point, all of humankind were God's enemies. And when God saw all of humankind in its aggregate, composite wholeness as enemies of his son and himself, Christ died for us. Not in penal substitution, not as a penalty of substitutionary atonement, but as a rescue mission to rescue us from the slavery under sin. God heard the groans of his people in Exodus and came down to deliver them. God heard our groans under our slave master's sin and the fear of death, and he came down to deliver us. Christ died for us. Us to rescue us from the present evil age. Not to assuage the anger of an angry, vengeful God, but to fulfill the saving will of a loving God, the God of love and of mercy, who shut up all humankind in disobedience, not to condemn all humankind, but to have mercy on them all. Thank you, Father. We are grateful for the opportunity to see the unveiling of a message and the invasion of an apocalypse into this evil age. This evil age, which so many of us are getting tired of, and the way it does its things, the way it boasts, the way it brags, the way it curses the name of our Savior. This evil age is that from which we are being delivered. For Christ died for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil age. 
God-approved livingness, Father. We thank you that you've bequeathed it to us because that's the actual experience of being delivered in our daily living from this evil age. And so we understand the importance of the word, of continuing in the word. For if you continue in my word, Jesus said, then you are truly my disciples and you will come to know the truth, not just any truth, but the truth that's embodied in me, Jesus says, Jesus says, 